Hello and welcome to the Ori Clark Audio Quick Guide, a straightforward conversation about a range of topics and issues commonly handled by Ori Clark experts for their clients. My name's Dominic Frisbee and joining me on today's episode is Chartered Accountant and Partner at Ori Clark, Richard Ori, alongside Chartered Accountant, Tax Advisor and also Partner at Ori Clark, Ian Phipps and Commercial Property Solicitor, Gemma Lalwani. And the subject of today's episode is property. And let's start with you, Gemma. What is the biggest mistake a tenant makes when leasing a property? I would probably say not limiting their repairing obligations. So especially if you're taking an office that isn't necessarily in a brand new building, um, I would always recommend having a photographic schedule of condition to show the current state of repair and condition of the property. Otherwise, tenants with full repairing and insuring lease are going to be responsible for putting the property into a perfect state of repair and condition, even if that's not the state that they received it in. I remember I recently leased a property, well, recently, it was about three years ago, but I'd sort of grown up and in the old days, everything was written down. So they'd describe how the property looked. And the lease that I got now, it was literally just somebody just gone around with their camera phone and photographed it, and that was the lease. And I thought, there's modern technology for you. That was one of the issues we were actually discussing because it's great to have photos of the area, but sometimes photos don't show everything. So having an annotated schedule of condition can be even better. Richard, I think you've been in this game a long time. You must have seen some pretty dilapidated properties and some awful tenants and some awful landlords over the years, I imagine. I think it's a really serious subject. Um, Many years ago, I had a client um, in Acton and they moved factories and um, Slough Estates, who I'm not maligning them, it was very much what they did and they were entitled to do, they bought the property and they enforced fully the repairing covenant. Now, this was probably a pre-war factory and they required every... PowerPoint, every floor crack, a whole building to be put back as if it had just been constructed. New roof, the whole lot. And it crippled the company, it broke them, and they went into insolvency. So it's a really serious issue. And the mistakes I've seen also have been sometimes you see, and it's easing a little because terms of leases are shortening, is that uh, Americans used to come over and they hated any long-term lease commitments. They had to report them in their accounts and the obligation was enormous and they hated it. So they would go around looking for short leases and usually they were handed the end of a 25-year lease with two years to run, which they thought was a great deal until, oh, whoops, we've now got to put this building back as new. And it literally is as new. You know, it's not a funny thing to do. It can be very big. Oh, to be a landlord. (laughs) It sounds like the deals have favoured in their favour, weighted in their favour. They were. It's now much more the balance is now in the tenants' favour because there's uh, not enough tenants and COVID has exacerbated that problem. So they're much more willing to negotiate and therefore take a schedule of condition and agree that you will put it back in to the same condition as you took it over, not better. Mm. Yeah, I mean, can't believe they demanded better condition than when they originally hired it to you. It just sounds outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so, so we talk about uh, statutory limits on dilapidations. Who wants to tell me about statutory limits on dilapidations? Yeah, uh, so dilapidations really can be awful. So as a rule of thumb, for example, if you have an office space that didn't have a schedule of condition, you'd be looking at roughly you'd start with looking at about £25 per square foot. But there are some limits on what a landlord can actually claim. Uh, so one of the limits is that there claim is actually capped at the loss of value to the landlord's interest in the property arising out of the disrepair. So if a landlord can rent out that property in the state of condition that you're giving it to them in at market rent, then their dilapidations claim is going to be capped. Whereas if it's in such disrepair that they can't rent it out in that state, you're going to have a large dilapidations claim there. The other statutory limit is if a landlord plans on demolishing or or completely redeveloping the building or the premises, then they won't be able to make a dilapidations claim because what's the point of a tenant paying thousands of pounds to repair a building that's just about to be demolished anyway? Just following on from that, what I was actually going to say is um, I think one of the key things that we should be talking about here is having a proper dilapidation surveyor. They'll investigate things properly. They'll look at things thoroughly. And it's not just, oh, just get your high street surveyor to look at this. It's actually, this is a specialist. And I mean, we've had, Richard and I have had a lot of experience with that. And should you get him in before or after? Well, before the end of the term of the lease, but you want to be instructing them very early on. They can be sort of immediately dealing and it makes such a difference to the negotiation. But I mean, you wouldn't have him before you take the lease? Well, you would, you'd get a surveyor in, but dilapidation surveyors are really about the law and what they can, how far the line can be pushed on either side. And, and it's very much a specialist area. A lot of them will do surveys and be, do them well, but the actual negotiation of what is allowed and what is not allowed is uh, pretty important. And, and whether something is worn out. Yeah, and they will tend to look at things like, is there, has the landlord got planning permission to demolish and have applications been made um, locally for those sorts of things? Has he got a tenant lined up to go in straight away at a similar rent, in which case, what's his loss? Because it's really making up for the, what the, tenant, the landlord is losing due to their occupation. You know, they've worn everything out. It's fair, they should put it back. Yeah, a dilapidation surveyor is also, they would also be able to say at, towards the end of the term to a tenant, they would look at the premises and say, you're better off doing these works yourselves and spending that money to get this into the correct state of repair and condition, or it's not worth it. Just have a settlement, and based on those statutory limitations, you will be spending less than if you were to do the repairs yourself. It is a minefield. Yeah, you need a good solicitor. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and he'll find you a good dilapidation surveyor. Yeah. So I've got a, a little bullet point here that says top pieces of advice, SDLT. That's your specialist subject, Ian. Oh, I love, we all love SDLT. <laughs> Let's just say what it is, stamp duty. Stamp duty land tax. And just as a sort of headline, there are currently, if you're looking to do a property transaction between now and, say, October 21. Um, There are currently about 17 different tables of stamp duty land tax that could apply to a transaction, which shows how simple it is, according to the uh, government. But one thing to bear in mind that stamp duty is payable, is often payable when you take out a lease. So it's just, it's a cost that you need to be thinking about. Why is that? Because it's a transaction in land and stamp duty is a duty that's paid on land transactions. So there's two aspects to it. There's an SDLT charge on the lease premium, 
Um, so if you make a, you know, quite often there's a premium and then there's obviously annual or monthly rents. So the rates um, for, for SDLT on a lease premium are for the first £150,000, there's no charge. For the next £100,000, there's a 2% charge. And for anything over £250,000, uh, there's a 5% charge. So that's stage one of the calculation. Stage two is that you then got a stamp duty charge on the net present value of the future rents. So you've got to look at it. If, you, if you're signing a 25-year lease, I mean, not that anyone would nowadays, um, as I'm sure we'll come on to, but you know, if you're signing a 25-year lease at high rents, you know, that present value of those rent streams is quite a lot. And again, you'd pay first 150,000 on that calculation, nil, Next, um, between 150,000 and 5 million, 1%, anything over 5 million at, at 2%. So, and then you add those two bits together and that's what you have to return. So if you take out a lease with a big premium and it's a long lease with big rents, you know, there's a big SDLT charge. So let's talk about, um, I mean, the next bullet point here is make sure that your lease is as flexible as possible. Who's going to take us up on that one? Well, I think I'd be happy to talk about it. I mean, flexible as possible. Um, you, as a tenant, you're going to be looking for the ability to break it, to get away from the obligations when and if your business needs. Uh, COVID would be classic if people had had uh, a lot of leases which were very short or had one year's break clauses in, I'm sure they would have got out of trouble. Whereas at the moment, they're locked into leases, might be five or 10 years, and the rent is payable. So there is a pressure from tenants to be as flexible as possible in their obligation. But the landlords, are, to a great extent, hold out because value of their property is valued on the length of the lease they can get and it's the security of that lease. It's a, a big dichotomy between the two parties. And uh, if you're going to invest in building properties, uh, you need the ability to say, I've got an income stream because the banks won't lend you the money to build it. And there is a shortage of factories. There's only a few people like Slough Estates really building. Most of the clients I've got who are in industrial will not build them. They cannot make money on it. Uh, so it's it's easy to say dreadful landlords, but uh, unfortunately the, the balance moves between periods when they do very well and periods when they do badly. I'm old enough that if I've got clients who had 25-year leases on new buildings and they just went to sleep for 25 years and took their money. Uh, now most of them are down to five years, one or two, ten, but, and a lot of people with five now want breaks every two years or you know annual breaks almost. If you do have a break clause, make sure that the landlord has to refund any rent you paid in advance. It's something that if it's not specifically within your lease that the landlord has to refund rents paid in advance, you won't get a refund of those rents. So it's one of those things when you're just looking at a lease, if you're a layperson, you often wouldn't even think about it. But there was a case a few years ago where Marks and Spencers lost millions of pounds because they couldn't get a refund of the rent that they had paid in advance when they exercised their break clause. So it is really important. Service charges. Who's the service charge expert at the table? <laughs> I think we all love those. I mean, I can I, I can give an example, I think, which is always, you know, one way of showing it. So I just had a client who's totally separate business, but he had a friend who was just looking to take on a cafe on a, on a business park, which shall remain unnamed, this business park, you know. But... Um, in theory, it looks a really good site. It was a little cafe just on the corner. You know, there's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of money and wealth going into this park. It's, it's sort of innovative technology, high-tech, science, all those things. So in theory, it looked great. 
you know, it was a £7,000 a year rent. You thought, oh, this is good. You know, I can do well on this. The service charge clause, which I you know, had looked at, I mean, a, a, it was, you know, bearing in mind he was, you know, £7,000 a little cafe at some guy who was running a cafe. You know, the, le- the sort of lease was something like 45 pages of close-typed thing. But actually, the service obligations were that, you know, you can pay service charge, which has got to be a, a share of not only the, the cafe, but the building they were in. All of the roads and the sort of access points for this entire business park and included, and, and said there's no exemption should we choose to demolish this building and rebuild it. You know, So effectively, this guy could end up with a liability of hundreds of thousands of pounds because the owners of the business park decide, you know, within our service charge, we can claim for, you know, we want to redevelop this part of the park. So, it, you know, in the end, obviously, he didn't get enter into that, but that was the good example of it. Well, thank goodness he or somebody read it for him. Yeah, absolutely. Better to give rent deposit instead of guarantee. Well, guarantees need pursuing and therefore you've got to go after the individual, which can be painful because most people sort of shy away from de-housing a director who's given a guarantee, which is probably the only way they're going to get their money. So it's far better to have a rent deposit, which is cash you've got your hands on, held for certain breaches. So if they don't pay the rent, you can take it out of the rent deposit. If there's dilapidations, you can take it out of the rent deposit. And you're generally in a far better position than trying to chase some poor individual for his failed company and taking his house away from him. We're probably your second or third in the queue. That's looking at it from the landlord's point of view. Also, from the tenant's point of view, I would still say it's better to give, if cash flow isn't an issue and you can put up a rent deposit, better to do so than give a parent company guarantee or a director guarantee because the rent deposit is limited to that amount that you have agreed with the landlord, whereas most landlords won't agree to a limited guarantee. Way leave agreement. What is a way leave agreement? A way leave agreement effectively gives um, service providers, so electricity companies, telecommunication companies, a right to install their cables through your building in its simplest form. I was remarking about a client who's um, uh, had a tenant who was being very, very difficult and unfair, uh, trying to take advantage of a mistake. And we looked at the lease and his solicitor hadn't made sure that he had the right to the electricity supply to his factory. So the simple answer to this tenant who was really misbehaving was, do you want to stay or we'll cut your power off tomorrow because you've got no right to it. And that's a reverse. The way leave is the big company wanting rights over you, but also you must make sure that the tenant has the rights to supply of services and they sometimes miss it you know if particularly if it's coming over other people's land yeah and on that point sometimes well you need to ensure that a building does have all of the necessary services if a tenant is taking a new lease and they need to have fiber internet for example they are going to possibly need a way leave agreement into their office and they need to have the landlord's consent to have that way leave agreement in place so that those cables can actually be installed within the building. Planning. Ensure the property can be used for what you need for your business. That sounds like a case of stating the bleeding obvious, but I guess the bleeding obvious needs stating. Quite often. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have the right planning permission and people will take buildings without it. I can think of, uh, shall we say, farmers who let their buildings out and quite often people don't check that they've got planning and they may be just farm buildings. 
So that opens them up to an enforcement officer arriving and saying, go, leave the building. It hasn't got permission for you to be an engineer in there or mm-hmm. store cars or whatever you're doing. And uh, quite often they don't check. That's correct. And the lease will usually say that the landlord doesn't guarantee that the premises can be used for that use. So even if the planning enforcement officer then comes and says, you can't use this premises uh, for engineering or whatever it might be, you're still on the hook under the terms of the lease. I mean, there is one good thing that just came in in September, which is a new use class. It's called use class E. It's an incredibly flexible commercial use class. So certain things that used to be under different use classes, so retail, offices, nurseries, gyms, restaurants, cafes, they all used to be under different use classes. And if you wanted to change between one use and another, you had to get planning permission in order to do so. They now all fall under this one use class. It's to do with the regeneration of the high street, basically, so that buildings, instead of, they can't be a cafe, they can't be a gym, they can't be a state, they're making it so that you can use them for virtually all of those activities to regenerate. Because the the old system of retail only, and it's got to be retail and nothing else, is just not going to work anymore. The 1954 Act Protection So effectively, a landlord might just speak about 1954 Act protection. Most people would have no idea what that means, but it's the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, under which tenants are granted a statutory right to a lease renewal at the end of their term. So they have security of tenure. However, you can contract out of it, which is what most landlords want to do, so that at the end of the term, they can get their premises back without having to pay the tenant compensation. If you have a lease that does have 1954 Act protection, so the tenant does have security of tenure, a landlord can only actually get the premises back on certain grounds. So there are certain fault grounds, like the tenant is persistently not paying their rent or they're not complying with their repairing obligations. There are also certain no-fault grounds such as the landlord wanting it back because they want to use the premises themselves or because they want to redevelop the land. If they want it back on a no-fault ground, the landlord is going to have to pay the tenant compensation and it can be quite substantial. So if the tenant has been in occupation for less than 14 years, it would be one times the rateable value. If the tenant has been there for more than 14 years, or even a predecessor has been doing the same business for more than 14 years, it's two times the rateable value. So it really can be quite substantial for a landlord if they want to get their premises back. And if you're going to claim redevelopment, you've basically got to prove that you've got planning, you've got the resource and expertise to redevelop. And so, for instance, if you're a trustee, you're virtually impossible for you to claim it's for your own use, and it can be very difficult to prove you're going to develop a property. You know, so it's much harder than it appears and therefore involves quite a lot of effort, time, legal costs of ours, professional advice to get there to prove it. And so we come to the final bullet point, which is the simplest piece of advice people should always remember. I'll give you a simple piece of advice if I was uh, taking a property is don't be lazy, read the contract and take advice. Well, yeah, or have someone else read the contract for you. Well, no, read it yourself. 
What if it's all in gobbledygook legal speak that you don't understand? Read it yourself. (laughs) I had a client who was dyslexic, really badly dyslexic Irish guy, and and, uh, he was taking property all the time. And he would sit and read a lease, and it would take him about seven goes before he could put all the words together in the right order. You know, it was like scanning radar was the only way he could read. And he'd pick up some of it and pick up, but he read every lease because he made a few mistakes in the early days and didn't realise despite advice, what he was getting into. And I, and I think also, if you're, you know, what people don't realise, in other countries from the UK, there's a lot more standardisation of a lot of these things, whereas the UK is literally, you know, almost every lease is different. Yeah. Most firms would have their own standard leases. They all get renegotiated with whoever their counterparties are. So, you know, the simple tip is, there is no simple, no standard, read it. And take advice when you, yeah. you know, read it with your solicitor, if you don't, but understand your commitments. Exactly, because as much as what is in the lease, you need to be aware of what is not in the lease. So things like we mentioned during this chat, not having a schedule of condition to limit your repairing obligations, um, ensuring that your rent is going to be refunded if you exercise a break clause, those things are not going to be in the lease unless you add them in. Just as important is what is not in the lease as what is in the lease. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you very much, Gemma. And if you want to find out more about anything we've just been talking about, you can find that information in the resource library section at oriclark.com. And if you can't find what you need, then send us an email, contact at oriclark.com, and one of our experts will get back to you and tell you everything you need to know. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Bye.